Hi guys, welcome back to Not By Sight. Did you guys know that May is Mental Health Awareness Month? Mental illness is more common than you might think. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, nearly one in five U.S. adults live with mental illness. Since the arrival of COVID-19, depression and anxiety have become rampant. Federal surveys show that 40% of Americans are now grappling with at least one mental health or drug-related problem. For some of us, mental illness may not be an everyday kind of thing, but I, for one, can relate to seasons of depression and I struggle with anxiety. I know I'm not alone. The tricky thing about mental illness is that when you're struggling with it, you think you're alone because a lot of people don't talk about it. There is a stigma around it, which can make mental health problems worse and stop a person from getting the help they need. On this episode of Not By Sight, we are going to draw back the curtains to shine some light on this topic. It is an honor to have my best friend, Becky Banks, here to share her personal experience with depression and suicide. Today, we're going to hear her powerful journey and find out how she is using her story to help so many. Becky, thank you so much for joining me on tonight's episode of Not By Sight. I've been wanting to get you on here for a while, so I'm so glad that we're finally recording. Thank you so much for having me, Deb. So I feel like we need to let people know our friendship spans like 25 years. And what's so unique about our friendship is that we met at the beach and our entire friendship has been long distance. Which to me is like, I don't know, like when I think of the movie Beaches, Mm -hmm. I feel like you and I have always talked about that. We're like, we're like the girls from the Beaches movie. Like we met at the beach and we have always stayed um, really close, which to me is very rare in the fact that um, we didn't have a whole lot of time to build the friendship in person, but we worked at a summer camp and we connected immediately. I wanted to establish that because I think it's important for people to know how far back we go. Um, now, the reason I have you on the show, obviously, um, this is this is a heavy topic that we're going to be talking about today, but we do hard things. And the hard things that we do go through, they do change us and really kind of propel us into like a different trajectory of life. And I feel like what you have been through and what we're going to be talking about today has has changed you but it's also allowing you to speak your truth, which takes me back to about eight years ago. You came to visit me in Arkansas and we were watching the IF conference where there's different speakers from like all over the country that really share uh, hard things that they've been through and what they've learned from it and how their lives have changed because of what they've gone through. And we, you and I remember sitting on the bed watching this, like on a laptop. And we were like, we want to be truth tellers. We want to be like these women that go on a stage and talk about hard things that we've been through, but how it's brought it, brought us closer to God and how we want to point back to God and share God with others. But little did we know while we were watching this, am I right? That, that we didn't know what kinds of trials we would have to go through to get to that place where we could proclaim our truth. And barely, what, six months later, I would be diagnosed with breast cancer. 
And little did I know that in the midst of us watching that video conference, you were already in the midst of a battle of your own that I don't really think I was fully aware of that you were in the midst of postpartum depression. Can you just take me back? How did your postpartum start? What was it like when it started? I never imagined that I would even have it. I couldn't wait to be a mom my whole life. And then I found out I was having twins and I was so excited. But the minute they were born, something physiological and hormonal happened in me. And I suddenly felt super overprotective. I didn't want any visitors. I didn't want anyone touching my babies. I wanted to be in complete control of them, which was absurd because I had two newborn babies. So I naturally needed help. I received help from my husband gladly, but I didn't want anyone else helping. And those feelings went on for well over a year. So we didn't even have a first birthday party for them because I couldn't imagine myself handing a baby off and setting up the cake. It just, uh, I don't even know what the word is, but it made me paranoid. So it came over me quickly. It suffocated me. And, and so when I came to see you that year, I was getting a break. So it's no wonder that you might have not picked up on it and me even realize it because I just thought I needed a break. Well, and I think there's this misconception that like postpartum depression only happens when your baby is little. Because when you came to visit me, like you didn't have these little newborns in your, you know, that you were leaving at home. You had, you had toddlers. Um, and I know that, you know, I've learned that postpartum can last many years. So when you look back at the journey of being in the midst of postpartum, I know you've said I had postpartum for many years. So how did your postpartum evolve and change over the years that you had it? I was suffering with depression before I had my babies, before I was pregnant and I had childhood dysfunction. So all of that carried with me into motherhood. And so who knows when postpartum ended and deep depression sat in and anxiety took over. As my children grew and I had very easy babies, if you can say that it's possible, and even with easy babies, they got harder as they got older. And everyone I spoke to said, isn't it getting easier? Oh, isn't it so much easier? They can walk, they can sit, they can play, they can talk. No one said it would get harder and it was getting harder for me. So here, I totally thought I was the only person in the world that it was getting harder for. I couldn't understand and I was not embracing each of the milestones except for the part that they were passing. I just wanted them to get older. I wanted them to get older. Where's this easy part that everyone speaks of? It was getting harder. So my anxiety and my depression were compounding year after year after year and I was spiraling out of control. Did you find too that it was just hard 
for you to ask for help, you know, being a, you know, I know you're a firstborn like I am, you're, you've got two younger siblings, um, you're a nurturer by nature. Uh, when I look back at the past jobs that you've had, like you, you know, you worked with a crisis pregnancy center, you worked in a homeless shelter, you were, pro, you were a professional organizer. At, to me, it seems like you were always that person that was there to help others. But um, when it came to actually saying, I'm the one who needs help. I need someone to help me. Was that something too that was hard for you to do, even in that time when you had littles, to really say, I'm struggling, I need to figure out what's going on? Yeah, it definitely was difficult. And I struggle with perfectionism. So the help that I thought I needed, I believed was unattainable. I needed a nanny, I needed a chef, I needed a housekeeper. And those things were financially impossible in my situation. So I, so then I just gave up and figured I couldn't get any help and let me just do it. And I don't know, a coffee from a girlfriend, I guess I didn't see that it would have helped me much because that had nothing to do with getting my children down for a nap. So I really, I just didn't even know how I needed the help. Gotcha. So it sounds like to me, you just felt like I just need to kind of, you know, pull up my pants and do this because nobody's going to do this for me. Right. Yeah, I, that is the mentality I had. So you weren't like when you were in the midst of first going through postpartum and then it developing into depression, did you know you were depressed? Did you know like something is not right? I... I probably need some counseling or something. Did, did, were you even aware of it? Yes, I was. When the babies, so they're back to babies again, when they turned 11 months old, I realized I felt the same paranoia as I did the day they were born. And then I realized, uh, all right, I need help. And so I was on an antidepressant before I was pregnant. I weaned off of it during my pregnancy, and at 11 months old, I got back on it. I could have gotten on it after I had the babies, but thought my depression was situational, and I thought, now that I have children, my life is great. What's the problem? These are the children I wanted, so get over it and do what you gotta do. It was completely out of my control. I didn't realize that. So yes, I went back on an antidepressant when they were 11 months old. It must have helped um, in a subtle way because then I just kept going through the motions. Right, right. So it sounds like you were kind of like, I'm getting through life. I'm surviving. This is as good as it's going to get. And when did things start to really shift? Like, you know, in all the years that you were struggling with depression, did you at any point start contemplating ending your life? Suicidal thoughts. Yes. My children were five years old. So the year prior, I was uh, contemplating it and entertaining that thought, trying to look for some other way out, but couldn't find it. Believing the lies that no one understood and that really isolated me, which I know is what Satan does. Um, I just fell right into that trap of 
Why even ask for help? No one can understand. No one can believe me. We lived in a tiny house at that time and I just felt like I was suffocating on so many levels. So tell me about that day in, in 2016 where you actually had more than a thought of suicide. Um, I know you were, you, you were driving in your car. Tell me about that day. I had two plans. My first plan was to drive off a bridge with my children in the car. And as I thought it through and realized this is not a very large bridge, we would probably not die on impact. I suddenly was gripped with fear and nixed that idea completely. As I did not want to hurt my children, I did not want any of us to suffer. I wanted us to be gone in a blink of an eye. And I, my love was delusional for them. I wanted to take them away with me and not have them grow up either without a mom or knowing they had a crazy mom. I just wanted to remove them from life completely. And when I realized I was thinking all of these things, I was horrified and realized, oh my goodness, I just made a plan. And so I took a deep breath and kept driving and went to where I was going and got through life. And then I proceeded to make another plan where I only took my life. And so I dropped my kids off at my mother-in-law's house. I gave them extra hugs, which felt so twisted to me. And I left and I was gonna go home and I didn't go home. I ended up going to a friend's house. And I told that friend that I can't go on any longer and I want it to end and she talked me off the ledge. So what made you actually ask for help? Because it sounds like the fact that you had thought through this plan, you were like, this is how I'm going to do this. Um, I really want to do this. What is it that said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm actually going to tell somebody. I guess, you know, there's, there's people that say I never would have taken my life. The fact that I the fact that I stopped off at someone's home, it also is just testimony of God intervening. He let me go that far. He let me go to the point of visualizing it and physically planning it. And then he said, that's enough. That's enough. And even though it's such a crazy thing when someone is so depressed, even though I made that plan, I still didn't think I was anywhere near it. So fast forward, my children stayed at my mother-in-law's house that night. They were technically supposed to just come home a couple hours later. They stayed and I went home and I went to bed after talking with my husband and like, what's going on? And I woke up the next morning and I thought, all I need to do is just go to the beach. I need to go to the beach and have a day by myself. That's all I need. And I love the beach, as you mentioned earlier. 
And you know what? When someone is severely depressed, even things that they used to love no longer bring happiness and joy. So I never got to the beach that day. Two moms showed up at my door when I had messaged them that I was unable to attend um, a get-together with our kids that morning because I said I had a nervous breakdown the night before. I didn't realize what I was revealing, but one of the friends' father committed suicide. The other friend, her best friend, committed suicide. They read into my message and wow. saw all kinds of signs. Wow. And they came together and they showed up at my door and they said, Becky, you, we're not leaving until you go get help. Had you any idea that these two friends had had any experience with suicide affecting them? No, I hardly knew these moms. I had just met them a little while ago. Wow. No idea. That, that was a God thing. It was a God thing. And so I'm like, what? I just need to go to the beach. And they're like, no, Becky. No, Becky. It's a lot. You're struggling more than you realize. And so for the next several hours, they proceeded to make calls. My husband was in on it. And... They made calls for me to go and get help. And so later that day, my husband brought me to our local hospital, the psychiatric department, and I was self-admitted and screened. And the psychiatrist said, you sound, oh, I was chalking it up to be, I, I was trying to figure out how did I get to this mental place right and I said I was a tired older mom that's what I told all the professionals hmm. and she was ready to release me to go back home and I said wait I'm gonna go back to the exact same stuff I think I need more help and so she said okay very well then we will admit you tomorrow into a mental hospital were you kind of like stepping back from yourself going, wow, am I really doing this? Or was it kind of like, thank God I am going to a mental hospital because I really need help? It was both. It was both. I mean, the only knowledge I have of a mental hospital is what you see in the movies. And usually they're horrific stories. And so that was the, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening part. But the but the relief part was I, I, I was believe, beginning to believe that I really was that bad. And I had always seeked help um, in, in the big picture, in the big picture. I'd been in counseling for years um, and took medicine, as I mentioned always looking to eat better, looking to exercise. I was always looking for ways to improve my life. So this was the part of me saying, yeah, I obviously am not able to do this all by myself. Like I need help. So there was a great relief. And when I got there, it was shocking on the one hand, but the other hand, I got such a break. All my responsibilities were removed from me. I no longer had to cook. I no longer had to clean. I no longer had to make my bed, feed my children, mother, wife, 
nothing. You could focus on yourself. Yeah. And start and start recovery. Start your recovery. Start recovery. And that was huge. And then another thing that was very um, impressed upon me was talking with the other patients in the hospital and realizing that they felt the same things I did. The despair, the hopelessness, the sorrow. And you realized you weren't alone. I did. And I, I felt such comfort from that, which I guess seems a little silly because they were in crisis as well but in our stable moment of chatting and coloring we could we could get comfort from that mm. Mm. well and just realizing you 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 had finally kind of stepped out of the shadows of isolation obviously by yes getting help and and letting friends know that's where it started you let your friends know like it was like a cry for help and you ended up going to a place where you could get the help that you needed. And I think too, you know, I think, you know, when I think about how the enemy wants to keep us in isolation because he doesn't want us getting help. He doesn't want us being exposed to light and to truth. And you made that choice to step out of the darkness and to step into the light of, getting the help that you needed and no longer did you have this like secret, you know? And what is that, that, that phrase, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets. Our secrets keep us sick. That's what it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And on top of that, I am an extrovert. So I'm even more sensitive to the isolating that I was doing was doing even more harm because that's not my makeup and to reach out and suddenly speak to all these professionals that knew the conditions that I was struggling with and then to talk to peers who were experiencing the same emotions I was beginning to feed off of that because I come alive when I'm with people and socializing, even though I was not in a sociable mood, but you can kind of get the picture. Well, and just like we've talked about in our friendship, like we're both like verbal processors. We, we have to kind of talk through things with another person, especially. And as we talk, we process and it helps us. It's like therapy in and of itself. Um, so, you know, throughout your journey in recovery, I mean, that's a whole nother you know, topic of what actual recovery looks like. But, you know, you had some dark days at the very start of your recovery right after you left the hospital. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So I thought the darkest days would have been the days leading up to my hospital stay, leading up to suicide, but they weren't. They were after, as you just said. And what had happened is in my first plan, to take my children down with me. The professionals notified Child Protective Services and they opened a case on me. And I was no longer allowed to to be alone with my children for the next six months. So that was an incredible amount of pressure and judgment and shame that um, was put on me 
based on my decision. And it was, I was already judging myself prior to this and I was already shaming myself and I was already fearing authority um, most of my life. So to all of a sudden have these strangers in this position to look over me and decide for themselves whether I was fit to be a mother of my twins was mortifying, mortifying. And to add to that, when I came home from the hospital, my husband didn't think it was necessary for me to jump right back into mothering. So he arranged for the children to stay with my mother-in-law another few days just to let me gradually come back into society. And hindsight, um, that was very smart of him and very wise and gracious, um, but I didn't see that coming. He didn't tell me till we were home and it was shocking and um, yeah, I, I quickly agreed with him, but it still hurt. And so I went through those few days of adjusting and okay, let's make dinner tonight. Let me get through that. Let me take a shower and get through that. And then the children came home and I was so happy to see them. I had never been away from them for two weeks in my life. And at that point, my daughter began to bite her nails, which was devastating to see. Um, I bit my nails when I was little. Um, and I, yeah, <laughs> it was just horrible to realize, wondering what kind of stress did she go through that caused her to angst over me not being there. It was, it was rough. Do you feel like in those days, especially where you were kind of in the midst of the aftermath of everything that had happened, that, that that was really the place where you had to kind of walk by faith, you know, um, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing for sure what, what your life was going to look like now that, you know, this, you know, everything was out there about what you had been struggling with, but you were still in the midst of struggle to like find your place, to not feel shame, to not, I mean, you were in the process of recovery. So would, so would you say that, you know, working through doing the work of recovery is where you really had to walk by faith, knowing that I can't just look at my circumstances. I can't just go by my feelings, my emotions. I have to just keep walking and trust that God is going to get me through. Yes. Yes. I was faced with what's the rest of my life going to look like. I need to make a change. I need to make a decision. So because I didn't take my life and I chose to live, I was giving God a second chance. All right, God. All right reveal yourself to me. Where are you? And so I dove into the scriptures seeking his promises for me. And the first verse that I came to was 2 Corinthians 10, 5b. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So I had a visual of my hand grabbing at the top of my head, outside of my head. I was 
taking captive those thoughts and I was casting them up to him. And then I did this next verse, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. So I replaced my thoughts. I took the bad ones captive, gave them to God. Then I replaced them with this verse, whatsoever things are. And what that was, was I was doing cognitive therapy and I was rewiring my brain for new thought patterns. I was doing the work of recovery. Wow. I love that. And I love the visual that you give because I could see it just as clearly as, as you described it. And what a great, what a great thing to do to, to, to basically rewire with God's truth, um, which is exactly what you did. What exactly does recovery look like for you? So soon after I came home from the hospital and was looking for other support, I remembered this group and it is titled ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics Slash Dysfunctional Families. And I went and I attended a meeting and I was blown away at how much I could relate to the problem and, and all the shares that were given. So what this group is, is we identify coping skills we learned as children, which worked for us then, but then we brought them into our adulthood and they've become dysfunctional and we hurt people with them. So we ask God to remove our character defects and heal us. We identify what we needed from our childhood and learn to reparent ourselves now. We also seek out a sponsor for accountability and it has been a life changer for me. How has recovery changed your life? How has it improved your everyday life as, as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter? I've had to face doing the work of becoming the real me as God originally intended. There's a sentence in our 12-step book that says you don't become the new you, you become the real you. And it's mind-blowing to imagine, what am I becoming the real me that I never even may have been all this time? That's so mind-blowing. Um, everything about recovery has been mind-blowing for me. But I face my junk and I work on it and I ask God to remove things and heal and sever and um, sever generational curses and do a new work in me. And it's been fantastic. How do you see God redeeming your story using what you have been through um, for good? Mm, in so many ways. During my spiral, I removed my mom from my life for two years. 
one year during my spiral, and then one year into my recovery. And at that second year, one year into my recovery, I came to a place of forgiveness, um, came to a place of much counseling about my mom and the, the need to restore that relationship, but to have boundaries and no expectations. And so I re-entered that relationship and it is good. That's great. Another area where God is redeeming a relationship is, is my children. Um, through recovery, I am now more present with them and enjoying them. This year of COVID, having my children home with me has been such a gift, such a gift, and I'm so thankful for it. Early in parenting, I was struggling with depression, which is regrets and thinking of the past, and then anxiety, all the what-ifs of motherhood, the what-ifs, I'm not good enough, and now I can live smack in the middle, smack in the present, and just receive and love on them, and it is good. It is so good. God is also presenting many opportunities to use my story to encourage others. I know without a doubt that my suffering was not in vain. My suffering was in hopes to bring me to my knees and to surrender my will to God and to let him do a transformation in my life. And that did happen. It's still happening. And now I love to share my story with other young moms or just women in general, men, anyone, anyone who suffers with anxiety, depression, suicide, postpartum. I mean, that covers a large gamut of what many people struggle with, even if it's just one little part of it. I know how it feels. I've been there. I've been at the very, very, very end. And now I have hope and now I have a reason to live and now I have God's Spirit in me and His presence around me and I feel His encouragement. I feel His life. I used to pray asking for things. Dear God, please this and please that. And I, I remember early in my counseling, my counselor said that I need to start praising God before I give him my petitions. And I'm like, that just feels so unnatural. Praising God. I am not praising him right now. But I did it. And you know what that was? Again, I mentioned this earlier. It's rewiring my brain for new habits, new mindsets. And so my prayer life now habitually is full of thanksgiving full of thanksgiving. I praise him for the little things like my bed is so comfortable and I am so thankful for it and then I praise him for the huge things. Um, a verse, uh, an, the last verse that comes to mind uh, with this is Genesis 50 20. What he intended to harm me, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Hallelujah. I give him all the glory and all the praise. It was nothing in me. It, 
I am not in this redeemed place in my recovery because I am a wonderful person or a strong person or a brave person as some think I am here because I surrendered and I let him take over now mind you that is still a daily struggle I still want to be in charge of my life I still think I know what's best for my life but deep down in my heart I know I don't I don't God does trust him let him let him steer your life Becky I just love your vulnerability and the way you are pointing back to God as your source of change, as your source of strength, as your source of doing this life. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Uh, Would you mind if I wrapped us up in prayer? Of course not. Go right ahead. Thank you. God, I just thank you so much for this opportunity that uh, you've you've allowed Becky and I to have here today on on this podcast and just the sharing of our stories and how we can see your hand throughout all of it. And I thank you so much for my sister and how she is brave and courageous and bold to testify to your goodness in the midst of such uh, a painful season. And how it has changed her, but really has changed her for the better and has given her a second lease on life. And I just pray that you would continue to bless her, bless her family, bless her ministry, and continue to give her more and more opportunities to share uh, her story, which really is your story. Um, And I just... Thank you again for her life. I thank you the f- I, just for the fact that you um, you moved and intervened on you know on behalf of her life for her to stay here, for her to be here, and to carry out the purposes and plans that you have for her. And I'm just so glad that she is a part of my life and that she's been a friend for so many years. And um, I just pray, just. Um, that you would just continue to uphold and sustain and um, carry her through uh, just the rest of the days of her life, God. I pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Not By Sight. If Becky's story resonated with you or if you know someone who would be blessed by her account, be sure to share it. I'd also love to hear from you. Please consider writing a quick review of Not By Sight wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, guys. Take care.